Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Wednesday, August 4th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, the six countries most likely to survive all-out societal collapse from climate change. Why is snow on the Alps turning red? And a website that will transport you back to sleepy nights in front of the TV in the early 2000s. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. A new study in the journal Sustainability has named the top six countries most likely to survive a climate change-fueled societal collapse. The authors Alec Jones and Nick King of the Global Sustainability Institute at Cambridge University primarily pulled from the University of Notre Dame's Global Adaptation Initiative, an annual ranking of 181 countries on their readiness to adapt to climate change. As part of their rubric, Jones and King also considered the ability of a country to grow its own food, mostly looking at land availability, if it has energy capacity, especially in terms of wind and solar, and how readily the country can isolate. Now, this last part seemed overemphasized and a bit misled to me, you know, since we're talking about climate change-caused destruction and not a pandemic, seems like the main reason that the authors were so adamant about a need for isolation was to avoid having to wade into geopolitical issues, and that's a major critique that this study faced. The New York Times spoke to a number of academics and other experts in climate and societal collapse who said that the study didn't sufficiently account for military power or governance, and also implies some potentially xenophobic isolationist fantasy ideals. Linda Shee, a Cornell professor of urban climate adaptation, pointed out in particular that island nations are not immune to boats and nuclear warheads. So all of that said, take this ranking with a grain of salt, but I found it fascinating nonetheless. So again, using the rubric of readiness to adapt, land to grow food on, capacity for energy, and ability to isolate, the number one country with the best odds of surviving a climate change-fueled societal collapse is... New Zealand. Now, this country is not particularly controversial. The country is number two on that Notre Dame Global Adaptation Initiative ranking, just behind Norway. It ticks all the other boxes, and Mike points out that tech bro million and billionaires have been eyeing New Zealand for years, with some of them even buying property and building bunkers there. The next choice is a bit more out there, Tasmania. Quoting Mike, Tasmania claimed the silver medal in the Survival Olympics thanks to its thriving agricultural infrastructure, which is built to sustain if everything goes to shit. That said, it's a small island that likely can't support a huge population uptick, so don't expect to be greeted like a hero when you show up as the world is ending. But if you can get in, odds of survival are pretty good. End quote. Number three on Jones and King's list is Ireland, and again, they've got a great agricultural industry and island status, so that's how they get so high up there on the list. Mike points out that Ireland exports a lot more than it imports, so they'd also be well-suited to cut off the rest of the world if need be. Ireland is similar to number four on the list, Iceland, which Jones says wouldn't experience as major a shift as other nations as the climate changes. That's due to the nation being kind of sparsely populated with lots of farmers, which Dr. Joseph Tainter, author of the seminal text on societal collapse, says is what 90% of us will be if said societal collapse is a total decomplexification event, aka an apocalyptic scenario where basically all electricity, etc. is kaput. Kind of like that novel Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. 
Tainter also says that this study underestimated the amount of fossil fuels required if the societal collapse didn't result in total decomplexification. But going back to Iceland, while they may be well-suited as a society to survive, their land very well may not. Justin Mankin, a professor of geography from Dartmouth, told the New York Times, quote, The spatial pattern of global warming-caused extreme weather and other hazards will undoubtedly deeply affect places like New Zealand, Iceland, and Tasmania. End quote. But let's keep going on the list to number five, which is the United Kingdom. Yes, really. I think it got a lot of points for being an island and having a lot of potential when it comes to increasing renewable energy and agriculture, but it would take them a lot of work to catch up to that. Mike points out that the country currently imports half of its food. And finally, sixth and last on the list is the United States and Canada. Tied for survival odds, but apparently dooming each other because of our shared border. Jones, again, doesn't think mass migration will be helpful during a collapse. Despite that, our huge tracts of land and ergo potential for energy and agricultural generation play in our favor. But like the UK, we'd have to do a lot of work to get to that potential because we're currently far, far behind. So that's the list, at least according to Jones and the Global Sustainability Institute, but I've got to agree with Professor Shi here, who remarked to the Times that she was, quote, concerned that the model's underlying data set, the Notre Dame Global Adaptation Initiative, is so strongly correlated with income per capita. She's not convinced that just because a nation is wealthy, it will be resilient, end quote. And yeah, I'd love to see a model that took different factors into account, like current self-sufficiency of residents living in a nation or something like that. And Andrew Pershing from the climate change reporting organization Climate Central shared a good perspective with the New York Times, as paraphrased by the Times, quote, Rather than focusing on how one country might better contend with a global collapse, scientists should focus on how to avoid that collapse, end quote. Hear, hear. Though Jones says that's kind of what he was going for. His hope in pointing out these ideal nations was that others might study them to improve their own resilience. Glacier Blood. No, it's not a new flavor from heavy metal water company Liquid Death. Glacier Blood is what some call the phenomenon of snow on the Alps turning red. And the snow isn't red from some type of pollutant or something, like when that chocolate factory accidentally coated a whole town in Switzerland with reddish-brown cocoa dust last year. It's a naturally occurring phenomenon as the result of snow algae. Quoting the BBC, Normally, these microalgae have a green color as they contain chlorophyll, the family of pigments produced by most plants to help them absorb energy from sunlight. However, when the snow algae grow prolifically and are exposed to strong solar radiation, they produce red-colored pigment molecules known as carotenoids, which act as a sunshield to protect their chlorophyll. End quote. Now, this red snow is not a new phenomenon or even a new discovery. The BBC notes that it's mentioned as early as 1819 in a book about an Arctic expedition the year prior. And the New York Times points to Aristotle as having the first written observation of red snow. It also doesn't just happen in the Alps. Researchers two years ago found samples of what they've dubbed sanguina in Europe, North America, South America, the South Pole, and as clearly illustrated by that 1819 book, the North Pole. The occurrences do seem to be increasing, however, and some recent findings are shedding more light on the bizarre spectacle. 
While the data isn't fully there yet, most researchers believe climate change is responsible for the increase in red snow. Leanne G. Benning, a professor of interface geochemistry at the German Research Center for Geosciences in Potsdam, told the BBC, quote, The rise in the atmospheric carbon dioxide levels increases the temperature, which leads to more snow melting. The moment there is liquid water on the snow, the algae start growing. End quote. And the New York Times points out, quote, extreme weather, unseasonably warm temperatures and influxes of nutrients from agricultural and sewage runoff all play a role in freshwater and ocean algae blooms. To see if the same was true for glacier blood, the researchers subjected the algae to surpluses of nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus. And while they have not found anything significant so far, they plan to continue this line of testing, said study author Adeline Stewart. End quote. Now, whether climate change truly is causing the increase in algae blooms, scientists are fairly certain that the algae itself could be fueling climate change. Because when the snow is red, it's less reflective than when it's pure white. So the heat from the sun gets trapped in the snow and causes it to melt more quickly, which then leads the algae to grow even more. Quoting again from the BBC, On a wider scale, the extra heat absorbed by the tinted snow can alter the temperature in the wider environment, speeding up the melting of snowpacks and glaciers. End quote. Researchers are also looking into how other creatures and organisms interact with or affect the algae. Earlier this summer, they discovered the presence of zooplankton in the algae. Benning told the BBC, quote, As snow falls, quite often it traps minerals and elements like nitrogen and phosphorus, both anthropogenic and naturally occurring. In this ecosystem, the snow algae are primary producers. When they bloom, they photosynthesize, consume nutrients while producing waste products such as sugars and other components, which serve as possible food for bacteria and other microorganisms, end quote. So the algae is kind of a flourishing ecosystem of its own. Now, one thing, or rather another thing, that's odd about the red snow is that it only appears from late spring through late summer. It goes away in the winter. And Professor Benning posited to the BBC, quote, One theory is that they go dormant and become almost transparent as they freeze in. When it's no longer needed, they lose the pigmentation as it's an energy-consuming process. End quote. So there's a lot we still don't know about this microalgae and the red snow it causes, but we do know it's becoming more common. So if you haven't before, you may encounter it at some point in your life. So this website is about 13 years old, but I just discovered it and it's wonderful. It's called youfellasleepwatchingadvd.com. And it does exactly what it says. The site is a single-page, static illustration of a living room from the perspective of someone sitting on a couch. In one quadrant of the screen, there's a tiny TV with a screen that will play the DVD menu of eight different movies that you can pick from to replicate that feeling of falling asleep while watching a DVD and waking up to the menu playing on loop. If you ever watched Pride and Prejudice, Born Supremacy, Terminator 2, Punch Drunk Love, or the third Harry Potter movie on DVD, this website will slap you in the face with incredibly visceral memories. There's not too much more to say about this. I just love one-task websites, and this is a fun one. So try it out yourself. The link is in the show notes.
So I read a great piece yesterday, and it's been getting a lot of traction, so you might have come across it already, but in case you haven't read it yet, I just want to recommend an article in Slate by Dan Coyce that's subtitled, This Mysterious Invention Was Going to Change the World and I Helped Kill It. I somehow missed the first part of the title when I read it, so for a few paragraphs, I was on the edge of my seat trying to guess what this invention was. Turns out it's right in the title, and I can't continue talking about it without telling you, so it's the segue. This long read is about the rise and fall of the Segway, and how the author of the piece contributed to the overhyping of its launch, which was kind of its downfall. I thought about doing a whole segment on the piece, but honestly, it's so good that I would have just ended up quoting like the whole thing without adding any commentary of my own. So I'm just going to tell you to read it yourself. And part of what makes it so good is that it touches on so much. The dot-com bubble, the nature of innovation, screwing up at work, the early days of virality, and the growing pains between Internet 1.0 and 2.0. Also, it has a throwaway line revealing that the man who invented the Segway also invented the Coca-Cola Freestyle. You know, the machine replacing soda fountains in some places where you press a few buttons and you can have any combination of drinks and flavors that you want. Yeah, the dude was trying to get Coke to help him roll out this incredible water purifying device he built to communities in need around the world, and Coke was like, okay, fine, but first reinvent the soda fountain for us. Anyways, it's a great article that'll be a fun trip down memory lane with some fresh insights if you remember the original Segway buzz, and if not, it's fascinating to learn about for the first time. Link to read it and an article with more on that whole Coke freestyle thing is in the show notes. But that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. 